0: We are back. Day nine, question and answers. Hopefully there will be answers. I know there are plenty of questions for our loving-kindness retreat. And uh, let us begin.
1: Ajahn, our first question is from Jin Ru from Ukiah, United States. Sincere gratitude for the warmth and sincerity of the retreat. This morning I was walking in meditation past a flock of wild turkeys under an oak tree, scratching in the leaves for grubs. I sent loving kindness to the turkeys, wishing them to be free of harm, knowing they were consuming grubs and sensing that snakes were hibernating under them, waiting for turkey eggs in the spring, and that some of them would most likely be dinner for the coyotes that night. From your lectures, we have heard that loving-kindness has no favorites. So I sent loving-kindness to all the animals around to not be harmed, hoping no one would go without dinner. The question is, how does wishing loving-kindness fit in with the food chain?
0: Yes, we um, have goodwill to all beings. We don't actually realistically hope that they're safe. We realistically know they aren't. And we also, for humans, wish them well and safety. And certainly, on our part, we are not, will not inflict any intentional harm on them. But we have no sense of uh, that we're that somehow this was going to make everybody in the universe safe. So we have actually a strong sense of reality that uh, inevitably, because vulnerable. Beings are vulnerable and um, and nature eats each other, so that will go on no matter how we feel, but our emotional structure is positive goodwill and at the same time realism that this will continue and that we ourselves will not intentionally inflict any uh, harm, on any of these beings. So this is not easy for people to get. They get all upset because they become very tender-hearted about this. But that's not the intent. The Buddha is a realist. He's saying, look at what happens to beings in this universe. They are regularly um, have pain and horror inflicted on them. You're going to have to be able to witness this with equanimity, with knowledge that this is the nature of what happens to beings when they're born. And you have a choice about how to feel about that. You can be horrified, you can be callous, you can even rejoice in it, or you can have equanimity. So equanimity is the emotion that allows you to walk through the middle of this battlefield with clarity and ease and a sense of reality and whenever it's your opportunity to act and interact with other beings you do so with a heart of loving kindness, you speak and so forth with that heart and from time to time you can help beings along the way, you can adopt a a child, you can adopt a dog, you can adopt a cat, you can be kind to your neighbors etc this kindness goes on in the midst of the fact that other beings will not participate in this kindness they they will not get it they are not going to be either kind or equanimous and that's all right that doesn't affect your kindness or your equanimity so you're lucid realistic cool in the head and warm in the heart and from time to time there'll be opportunities for for alleviating pain in other beings and times when there will be won't be anything you can do so that that's the the balanced view of these things and it does take a long time to to understand this but if you can then you will have a much less you will have much less suffering in this life
1: our next question comes from lola w from north vancouver canada You mentioned that the body is in the mind, but how much? I have an internal organ that is so lazy and seems to work only when it wants. Could doing loving-kindness meditations on it help? What do monks do when they're having ongoing health problems?
0: Well, uh, loving-kindness actually can help. We even have a specific chant uh, for illness, and uh, it is basically to recite the seven factors. It's called the Bojanga Paritta. And it's it's a recitation of the seven factors of enlightenment. And we have a few cases, the Buddha himself was sick and he asked the monks to chant that for him. And, and another uh, disciple of his who was a fully enlightened, Arahant was ill and and they chanted the bojanga Paritta. The, this is the, uh, more or less just the list of the seven factors of enlightenment. And that's supposed to be very helpful for, um, the alleviation of, of illness. Loving kindness, of course, can be very, very helpful. We, everybody, I think science knows that there's a huge level of psychosomatic, uh, uh, illnesses and that's that psycho, the, the the mind and the body, soma, psyche and soma are interplaying all the time. And if we have stress fear, anxiety uh, in our mind, we can uh, inflict uh, ill health on our body. And at the root of it, this is, we would call that stress. And lots of people are under stress all the time. They They haven't had good, clear instructions about how they should think about things and when they should not think about things. For instance, at night, when you're it's time to go to sleep, it's not time to think. It's time to go to sleep. And then you will think much more clearly in the morning. When you're worrying late at night, this just gives you bad answers because your your sense of judgment is clouded by fatigue. And then some people are healing and their presence is healing and it's mostly because they're full of kindness and uh, good wishes and non-judgmental towards one. Uh, so some, and of course people find uh, animals are like that as well, they're, they're quite a, they're quite healing because they're not judgmental and they're affectionate. So you can see a lot of uh, connections between uh, goodwill, loving kindness, and also high aspirations to make something, r- relieve the suffering in this life. So the the Seven Factors of Enlightenment are the the person should first study what they are and and, and be inspired by them. They are mindfulness, investigation of truth. So one is a curious and inquiring person uh, with high attention. And then energy and joy arises from this process which eventually leads also to serenity and deep stillness of mind, concentration, and finally to equanimity, which is a a kind of a, a sterling quality of being able to walk through the world without being distressed and to be able to see reality as it is without being swept away. By being able to face both success and failure without being swept away, Uh, off-balance, fame and obscurity, good health, ill health, good fortune, bad fortune, one manages to stay centered in the middle of these things. That little list of the seven factors, when one realizes how it improves one's life, one's emotional life, one feels very uh, exalted by that, and quite often that can help you overcome uh, types of ailments and illnesses. But we, in the end, we also must admit that the body is fragile and vulnerable, and that sickness is part of existence. Buddhism doesn't have any magical belief that you can. there's some trick, you know, that somehow you can never get sick again. Uh, we don't believe that. Uh, it depends on your karma and your your genetic inheritance and all of these things. And we, but we need strategies to deal with it. When we, when we do get sick, we need strategies. Of course, uh, medicine, if you can find competent medicine is, is perfectly fine. And if you can find emotional uh, encouragement, support through spiritual practices and meditation, that also can be very, very, very effective. Not that I, I specifically said and talked quite a bit about the ability of loving-kindness to alleviate pain in the body and to really, if you need to use the voice of another, just recordings or somebody talking you into goodwill and loving-kindness, you will feel a subsiding of, of pain in the body. Um, so these are some suggestions for for this, the... How much of the body is in the mind? A lot.
1: (laughs) The next question is from Monica from Calgary, Canada. How does metta practice relate to contemplation of death, of self, and that of dear ones? How can I incorporate metta while meditating over the death of self and others?
0: Death is a, a very important meditation. And with a, a basis in loving kindness, one should reflect on death, and that is that we don't want to. That a lot of people are very out of touch with this, and it's the root of many, and many uh, existential problems. Is that people are suppressing the reality of their 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 own uh, certainty of their own death, and the uncertainty of when and then there's the, the the other aspect which is entirely different that the death of others the loss of others so this is something we have five subjects for frequent recollection we recommend and which we recite now this happens to be a loving kindness retreat so i didn't go on extensively about this but just for the sake of this question one reflects on a regular basis four or five times a day i am of the nature to Sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that I have, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And the last one is, Whatever I do, for good or for ill, That is my inheritance. So we have these illness, aging, death, and loss. And everybody gets to go to that party. That you you all have an invitation. (laughs) The moment you're born, illness, aging, death, and loss are your lot. And now all you have left is how are you going to behave in the midst of this? this is like a war that's going on you don't know when it's your turn and you don't know when anybody else's turn is and some of them you love and then you turn around and they're gone how are you going to deal with that especially if you haven't made it real for yourself so these are the this is the uh, other aspects of contemplation so metta is a it's a single topic very, very rich and profound and helpful, but other reflections need to be practiced as well, and the Buddha recommends that one as frequent recollection. And this is for lay people in particular, as well as monks and nuns. We all are, share this in common, that we are all go, have illness, aging, death, and loss, and we still have to be responsible for our reaction to this, how we process and walk through life in a responsible, loving, and ethical way. Because if we don't, then we will have negative results. So this is uh, something which I could go on. And I, I'm i sure I have given talks on this on my YouTube channel. So check out Ajahn Sona's YouTube channel, uh, especially about these issues of illness, aging, death, and loss. And Endless talks about the ethical and skillful strategies for how to behave in life so you don't regret what you have done.
1: Our next question is a combined question, which were both similar, from Maitri W. in Jacksonville, United States, and Shira in Kafar Sabah, Israel. I have found that once I get the fire going, perhaps halfway into a sitting, I would arrive at a point where the mind feels spacious and still, and I start to feel the subtle sensation of breath. While I feel the urge to move on to breath meditation, I force myself back into metta. Sometimes as I generate metta, it feels somewhat feeble and fades away after a couple of minutes or so. Then I have to arouse it all over again. I find that restarting it over and over again can be quite tiring for the mind, and it's hard for me to keep going like that for 45 minutes or even for just 30 minutes. Any suggestions?
0: Yeah, we have to get it going so that it doesn't peter out on us, and this is the nature of fires as well. It, if you don't put enough fuel in there, it will peter out. And so this is something that we we get so that we're keeping it going all the time. There's a tradition in India of, uh, of maintaining the household fire, and basically I guess it was difficult to light fires, but someone is there. there's whole religions around uh, maintaining and not letting a fire go out 24 hours a day, because fire does so many things for us. It cooks for us and keeps us warm and provides light and all of these things. And uh, so there's a, there's a kind of a, a religion almost of maintaining a fire, but for the Buddha, he saw that uh, these kind of externals, uh, kind of rituals are, are just symbols. And he converted the idea of fire into loving kindness. So instead of keeping the, the hearth, the home fire going, it's more important that you keep the fire and the heart going, the warmth of the heart going and don't let it go out and see if you can maintain it. So this is something that you bring into existence and you don't need to have a huge bonfire going, but, and and you should try it in different postures as well, not just sitting still. You can also start with breath meditation first and then move to loving kindness. Uh, Once the mind is nice and serene and settled and everything, then you can move to loving kindness. You you can even start artificially with a smile, just smile for no particular reason. And that might remind you of um, emotions. There's a kind of a reverse energy. You smile because of a certain emotion, but if you just smile, you might be reminded of a certain emotion. And again, uh, there are other tactics and I I call uh, making us a, a meta scrapbook so a loving kindness scrapbook now scrapbooks are rather out of date uh, people used to save pictures of their friends and their family and all kinds of things in these scrapbooks uh, these days we have uh, computers and so forth so you can make yourself a, a, a meta scrapbook with songs and images and anything that makes that moves the, the heart including Dhamma talks and all of these things, whatever moves the heart to help you with the fuel of getting this fire going and, and keeping it going. And then after it's going, then leave your scrapbook behind and see if you can just carry it, carry the feeling along and let the feeling be the initiator of thoughts. So first we use thoughts to initiate the feeling. And then we let the feeling initiate thoughts. So when we're feeling this Kindly way, we'll get all kinds of new ideas about how we should relate to others, uh, how we should relate to ourselves. We'll be a lot more wise and non-judgmental, have deeper insights, and sometimes we get brilliant ideas out of this as well because we think in a in a more enhanced and wise way when we have this positive emotion. So you're going to have to explore and of course uh, breath meditation is not the enemy of loving kindness it, breath can come first or loving kindness can come first you can go back and forth between them but you should try to separately conduct an experiment about how about getting to loving kindness and then maintaining it and after you do that then you can see how deep you can go with it how still and uh and word-free you can be and still maintain this feeling of loving-kindness. So this is a a grand exercise which I assign you to do for the rest of your life.
1: (laughs) Next question is from Yasantha A. from Summerland, Canada. Dear Ajahn Sona, I am enjoying my first meditation retreat. I thank you all who organized this event. During the other evening's chanting, you introduced the group to the Pali version of the Karyana Metta Sutta. This brought back some of my beautiful memories when I was a kid. I used to wake up to the sutta played on radio stations back home first thing in the morning. However, at that time, I did not know the meaning. My question for you is, do people get benefits out of listening, chanting a sutta without knowing its meaning?
0: Yeah, it it may be the case. Um, the Buddha was very interested, though, that people did understand the meaning. There are two kind of uh, philosophies, and, and before the Buddha, there was a strong feeling that the very sound of sacred texts or sacred recitations, the very sound of it and its precise pronunciation had power in it. Now, the Buddha didn't want to emphasize that because it means that the the, the 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 words can never be translated into another language because they would lose all their power. So the Buddha said, no, the power of the truth is in the meaning of the words. Dhamma is something that has meaning to it. It's not the sound of the words, it's the meaning in the words that has the the, the truth in them, the, the power. And that's why Buddhism is an international religion. Many of these religions that have believed that the very sound of the, there's a specific language and a specific way to pronounce that, and that has intrinsic power to it. They did not be, become international. They, didn't, they couldn't go to other cultures, but Buddhism did. And the Buddha wanted people to translate these things and explore these things. Why we stay with the with the Pali sometimes is just that we want to go back and refer to it and To understand For the sake of translation and and a different culture what what these words could mean So I spend a lot of time. In fact, uh, I'm spending ten ten full talks taking just that sutta apart, and examining each word, and sometimes I use the Pali word, and I say, now, we could think of it this way, we could think of it that way, what does it mean, what did the Buddha think it meant, etc., so, it's very important that we keep the meaning, but these things become, if you, especially if you hear them as children, you, they become uh, quite moving, if you just hear the sound, it's, it's very moving, so like, like hearing Christmas carols and so forth, it's, it, it connects to your childhood of People who are raised in uh, Christian tradition, if they hear hymns and and Gregorian chant and everything, it, it has a whole resonance to it. But if you're not, if you come into this later in life, it doesn't mean anything to you. The sounds just don't mean anything to you. So this culture is not raised with Pali chanting or monks chanting. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, in, I think in Sri Lanka, uh, you're, you might be from Sri Lanka, that they play on the on the public radios uh, in the morning. a monk gives the five precepts, and so as you 're walking through the streets you you hear uh, the five precepts being belted out by the by the monks and uh, chanting of this loving kindness and of course, you might see monks walking on alms round as well, so they 're reminding in Thailand even more more so that alms round. Monks going on round is is more visible in Thailand than it is in uh, Sri Lanka. It's absolutely a a constant daily experience. And to hear chanting coming out of all kinds of temples, 35,000 Buddhist temples in, in Thailand alone, hundreds of thousands of monks, and so you're seeing this everywhere, Buddha images everywhere. So the whole atmosphere is permeated with this uh we're a long ways from that with this culture but uh we do have some advantages and the fact is that we can communicate with uh thousands of people through such videos and uh YouTube and podcasts and so forth so this is, this helps and that's also why I chant I chant in English and I chant in Pali so you can take your choice and you can get familiar with these sounds and you can you can understand historically how they were transmitted as well so your memory you remember things by through chanting better than just by recitation by raw recitation notice that even in late in life uh, when your people are in their 80s and so forth they're losing their memory about everything else but they can still remember the words to songs that they learned as children so it goes into another part of the memory and stays with you
1: Our next question is from Anonymous in Ottawa, Canada. Regarding walking meditation and metta, I have been walking in an urban environment while trying to generate some kind feelings. I already knew how much of this environment offends me, but I was surprised at the constant stream of negative thoughts associated with things like garbage on the ground, ugly architecture, thoughtless drivers, unpleasant noise, etc., So far, the best I can do is try to have neutral feelings about these things. For example, most buildings, ugly or not, serve a useful purpose. Garbage on the ground is simply a reflection of people's ignorance and or hopelessness. This strategy of neutralizing visual offenses can alleviate the negativity and can feel like a gift of kindness to myself. However, sometimes I also feel this is just a mental game I'm playing, that it's not legitimate. Am I fooling myself?
0: Uh, you're onto something there. And this is what the Buddha asks monks to do as well. Monks have to walk through the villages uh, on alms round every day. And you're gonna you see all kinds of things. There's uh, beautiful sights and there's ugly sights, uh, etc. cetera. So the Buddha asked the monks to re- practice sense restraint. So the monks are up in the morning, early in the morning, practicing meditation might be they might have generated a very powerful sense of loving-kindness or focus or and they this is what is called a sign you know the sign of peace you feel the sign of peace you feel very peaceful you feel very kindly serene whatever Now you got to go out and walk through the village and this could be several miles of walking around and you're walking barefoot through the village with your bowl and uh, people are coming out and there's all kinds of activities going on. The Buddha says, now monks, I want you to practice sense restraint and it doesn't mean that you're going to close your eyes because you, you wouldn't be able to walk through the village with your eyes closed. And you can't close your ears, you can't close your nose, you can not speak. Uh, but you're going to feel as well, so your senses are active, right? So how do you practice sense restraint? You, you, the Buddha says, do not attend unwisely to the sign of the beautiful, and the sign of the ugly. Don't attend unwisely, because it's a matter of consciousness. So you, you critic, you see something that's has a fault or a flaw, and then you generate. A negative emotion towards that, and that's unwise attention to the fault, and then you see something beautiful, attractive, and then you think, I want that, I, I like that, I, I must get that, that's unwise attention to the beautiful. So you should uh, try to walk without, as a monk does, with, a, with sense restraint, and not, not, not to comment to yourself either on the fault. Or the beautiful, not to comment on this, and you will come out the other side of your walks very just with what you went in with. You will, if you can develop some serenity and goodwill, you will end your walk with serenity and goodwill, and then you realize, aha, this is very wise. I can't let the the world dictate my feelings, and if I make, if I find the the modern architecture, sterile and thoughtless, etc. I, should I suffer about that? Why should I suffer about that? I need to understand, I can restrain myself. Um, Socrates used to go walking around the markets in Athens. And people asked, because he's a very simple man, he didn't have many possessions, and they asked him, why why would you do that? He says, I I like to see all the things I don't want. (laughs) I have no need for. So philosophers and spiritual people have to walk through this world, and this is the secret of how to walk through this world without being distressed and without craving it, is that you practice sense restraint, which doesn't mean you close your eyes. It means that you are aware when you're investing unwisely in negative comments or desire uh, type of thinking. And you, you can do this. Everybody around, is, they, they love to have conversations about how bad things are and uh, this and that and how, and how beautiful that is and so forth. They, they, you're gonna have to drop out of those conversations to some degree That may be a little awkward, but certainly when you're alone, you really don't need to engage in those conversations. Try it. You will like it.
1: (laughs) Our next question is from Anonymous in Kiel, Germany. Thank you, Ajahn Sona. In your talks, you mentioned that the amount of positive emotions, as well as with the negative you put into the universe, comes back amplified. Maybe it is a stupid question, but I often wonder why it is that way. Are there any explanations, or is it just wrongly asked when one asks why? Has the view or hypothesis of science of the balance of the amount of energy in the universe something to do with that? If one understands emotions as a kind of energy, maybe one can't see it in this way.
0: Uh, well, it's uh positive Uh, Intentions generate positive results and negative intentions generate amplified negative results. So in the end uh, uh, They cancel each other out I'm just making that up (laughs) This is yeah. Well, we we understand Buddhism has uh, basically five laws and uh, we, We fully accept the laws of physics the laws of chemistry the laws of biology with uh, the laws of psychology and then Kama as well so these laws apply to the how the physical world uh, functions so there's inanimate objects stones and things which are not biological then there's another level which is biological such as plants so there's the laws of physics and then there's laws of biology how plants grow By the way, if you want prolific uh, uh, things happening, you can see that a single plant can produce billions of uh, seeds and uh, prototypes. And it it can be incredibly prolific. Uh, Also a disease can wipe out whole species. So it can be, uh, the fact that it's prolific uh, can be in either direction, in a positive direction or negative direction. So we have uh, physics, and then we have the biological level. And then the next level up is psychology, where there's obvious consciousness. So animals and humans have an obvious consciousness. Plants have an obvious life to them, a biological element. Uh, rocks and so forth seem to obey the laws of physics. Notice these, these things lapse over, so plants take up inanimate elements and they turn uh, inorganic to organic and then animals and humans turn that plant into conscious beings as well. And then there's the law, so those are the three laws that the, most of the West works on, this is all that they, you know, science all acknowledges physics. Uh, biology, psychology—they they're very primitive in their sense of psychology. The mind—they get theories. Psychologists get theories about how the mind works. Why does somebody? Why is somebody a mass murderer? Why is somebody kindly, etc.? They have these various theories about why that happens. Buddhism also has that uh, a, a sense that there is a that the mind works by lawful means. Now that's where the West stops. They try to explain everything through those three laws. Physics, biology, psychology. Next, Buddhism has another law, Kama, cause and effect in the moral dimension. And this interacts with the other three laws. So the moral Your moral activity also has to play out in the midst of three other laws all simultaneously happening as well. Physics, the laws of physics, the laws of biology, and the laws of psychology are also playing out in the midst of your ethical conduct. And all all those four are also uh, playing out with each other, and that's called... The Laws of Dhamma, so how do these all play out together and interact in an infinitely complex uh, structure? The Buddha uses this quite often, this word infinitely complex or unthinkably complex. Uh, And we we have this in uh, modern science as well and it doesn't take very many activities to make infinite complexity. In physics, it only takes three objects orbiting around each other, just three planets in orbit around each other, and the trying to predict where they would be in, over time becomes infinitely complex. We call it chaos. It doesn't mean that it's not has no laws to it. It means that it's, it's, it goes beyond predictability. That's just three objects orbiting each other, that in a very short time, the position becomes infinitely incalculable, let alone the, the world around us with physics, biology, psychology, comma, uh, interacting with each other. They're not, they, they, they have interactions. Try to process this. All we're left with is this that you do good. And you'll get good. <laughs> do bad, and you'll get bad, bad results. This is this is a saying in Thailand trying to simplify. So how do you make any sense out of the complexity of this? Stay with your ethical decisions and know what they are. And if you can't feel it, at least act like you can feel it. What is to act like you can feel it? Follow the precepts. Don't kill, don't steal, no sexual misconduct, no lying and stay away from the intoxicants. It, you, you, you may not know why you're doing this, but at least you won't regret your activities. And if you can go further and find the feeling behind those precepts, specifically such things as loving kindness, then you will also have you will be putting in positive energies which will come uh, have positive results as well. So I just did a, I summarized the Encyclopedia Britannica of uh, Buddhism there in just about three minutes, so uh, we'll go on to our next question.
1: Our next question is from Richie C. in Rothsay, United Kingdom. Just wanted to ask about memorizing the Metta Sutta. I have been doing this over the course of the retreat and found chanting it both out loud and in my head a real help for gaining some focus and mindfulness, keeping things in mind. It has also been effective for overcoming earworms and advertising jingle-jangles that loop over and over in my head at times. Yesterday, you talked about a method for generating metta with the analogy being of using kindling to get the metta fire going. My question is, can chanting the metta sutta also act as good kindling for getting metta started with serenity, warmth, and friendliness?
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, chanting is the, one of the primary methods for getting it going and, and just to try to make it, uh, something you're affectionate about. You know, there's, there's certain songs that you love and certain, there's a few lines from a song that you repeat over and over to yourself, not as an earworm. By the way, uh, Maybe not everybody understands what an earworm is. You know, that when a melody gets in your, something gets in your, in your head and just repeats over and over, and you can't stop. That's an earworm. It's not a worm. <laughs> it's not in your ear, but it's in your head. But so, um, yeah, chanting is, is what the Buddha would said, hope that you would, how you would remember it and that you would reflect on it. And I think at the time of the Buddha, it's, it's done a little bit melodically, and in, you can see that chanting is done in differently in different cultures. And when I chanted the, some of these suttas, in, uh, both in English and in Pali, I had a little melody to them. And that, a melody like that kind of helps you uh, remember it, and it also helps you enjoy it a little bit. Uh, if you do it dry, like without any intonation and everything, you, it may not be all that pleasant an experience because it's very unnatural to do monotone type of chanting. So yeah, try to make it pleasant for yourself and uh, to internalize it and uh, to enjoy it. And it may have a strong ability to make you feel uh, loving kindness.
1: Our next question is from Anonymous in Portland, United States. Dear Ajahn Sona, I have been experiencing some fear during meditation. It is hard to describe, but feels as if I will just lose control or leave my body. This has happened before when I I had a regular meditation practice. I have survived some severe trauma, and meditation has helped me through so much. However, fear is rearing its ugly head as of this morning. I have been so afraid the last two meditation periods that I couldn't sit through it. I don't want to stop meditating, but I feel hesitant and even slight dread about it. What guidance can you offer?
0: That happens, and uh, especially for people who have trauma, it's not always recommended that you just plunge into meditation and stay in it no matter what. It's not This happens in monasteries, and uh, usually the abbot will advise you to stop meditating and go sweep up the sala, (laughs) or do some dishes, or go and cook something. You know, you don't want to... There's a time and a place for things to up well, and it has to be not overwhelming. And so you need to treat yourself with delicacy. The mind is a delicate thing. And to just believe that no matter what comes up, just face it and... I've seen lots of people lose 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 it a little bit when they're uh, told to, you know, th- this is a lay especially this idea of lay people coming to a long extended retreat. They're not trained as monastics. Monastics are brought in and gradually trained over a long period of time, and the, the idea of designing a a retreat for lay people where you just randomly anybody walks in the door and then you're going to sit them down for 10 days and make them watch their breath and everything this is a pretty the results can be very vary on the spectrum of positive to negative that's a rather an experiment so i don't let people come to the monastery and take 10 days silent retreats unless they have done retreats before have been introduced, and I want them to have several years of experience. I don't let anybody walk through the door because this is gonna be very overwhelming. And now you'll see that there are Buddhist groups out there that just let anybody sign up, walk in the door 10 days, but you will get people having very negative results sometimes, uh, having psychotic breaks and so forth. That needs to be questioned. That is not kind and not wise. And I don't approve of those kind of things where you just a whole bunch of strangers, you lock them in an elevator and leave them there for 10 (laughs) days with their traumas and everything. This is not good. If you're feeling that kind of intense, overwhelming emotions, it's time to take a little break and maybe channel it into some, go listen to some Dhamma talks that make you feel better. Uh, do some physical uh, exercise or clean up your house or things like that. Uh, The idea is not to push yourself to the edge of (laughs) brink of psychosis at all. This is not what we're up to, what we're about. And so for some, it's very important that you go gradually and with good supportive friends along the way and that you don't put yourself into an extreme situation like that. That's not a good idea.
1: Next question is from Alberto L. from Santander, Spain. The Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path are said to lead to the end of suffering or dukkha. My question is about the difference between suffering and pain or dukkha and pain. If you stub your toe or get hit by a baseball, you would expect painful sensations to follow in a sort of automatic way given our human physiology. I understand there's a distinction here, and a numbness to this pain isn't what is meant by this concept of the end of suffering. Could you clarify the distinction, if there is one, between the physical sensation of pain and the concept of dukkha? Thank you, and I much appreciate this retreat and the journey that it is for me.
0: Yes, yeah, so the the fully enlightened person has come to the end of their psychological uh, distress, their psychological suffering, but they they're not beyond a physical a pain. So they they have they can have severe physical pain in the body and so forth, but they are not accompanying that by anxiety, fear, revulsion self-pity, all of the things that ordinary people generate around these physical sensations. So that's your option. And that the Buddha's simile is a man is has an arrow uh, enter his body and then he does a strange thing, he sticks another arrow in his body. So the second arrow is the psychological, the unnecessary psychological suffering that you add to physical suffering. So we can learn to separate these two things. And it's, very, it's a very weird connection and most people are very unskillful with this. First of all, they haven't been told that they can and should do that, that they, they need to uh, realize that they don't have to accompany uh, physical illness and pain and so forth with distress and grief you know it's interesting also that some people you'll see this uh they have uh emotional pain and they will sometimes con- con- uh, compensate for that by inflicting physical pain on themselves so this cutting themselves and so forth because it's 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 less painful than the f- f- psychic pain so they they cut themselves to transfer the pain to something that's physical. So there's a very peculiar relationship between this emotional pain and physical pain. And so we need to separate these two and understand that the body will always remain vulnerable. And uh, even if you're enlightened, you will still stub your toe, there'll be a painful sensation, but you won't be thinking, oh, poor me, why me, why? That's very, very important and will save you vast amounts of unnecessary emotional distress.
1: Our next question is from Tracy B. from San Francisco, USA. I have instructions in my health directive that my daughter will take me off of life support when two doctors declare brain death. I understand that this means that I no longer and will never be conscious again, only the body organs will still work if under mechanical support. Also the organs to be given while still while still good. What would the Buddha say? I certainly do not want my daughter to have the bad karma of, quote, killing me. Thanks, Ajahn. I am very thankful to get to know about the availability of your teachings.
0: Yeah, the, this is a point that we examine very carefully in uh, Buddha's teachings. Uh, monks are... Forbidden from counseling people to, to uh, alleviate suffering by killing themselves or alleviate somebody's, you know, counseling somebody to uh, euthanize somebody. Well, that's, that's a specific intention where I think with this, I shall, this will kill them. I will kill them with this. And so if a monk actually counsels a person to do that and they do it, then that monk is instantly disrobed and can never be a monk for the rest of their life. So it's a very severe thing. We're not to counsel anybody to kill another person or to kill themselves. So suicide and deliberate, intentional euthanasia, so-called euthanasia, I don't like to use the term. You're not to kill somebody you're not to kill yourself and the monks are forbidden from counseling anybody to do that but it doesn't mean that you must keep them going forever if they decide they don't want to have extraordinary medications or they stop eating or something like this that's their decision and it's not a deliberate intent to to kill it's a it's it's a it's a cessation of of sustaining of the body or something like this but it's a totally different thing. Now monks are not necessarily recommending this either but uh, to disconnect somebody from or turn a machine off that's keeping a body going and so forth is not the intention to kill. And you can, you might have a a determination not to, uh, what do they call it? Make extraordinary, no extraordinary, uh, activities to, to maintain, to, to maintain my life. That's different than please inject me with something that'll kill me. (laughs) So Stop injecting me with something that'll keep me alive is different than inject me with something that'll kill me. So these, these things are subtle. So you, you want to be specific with your daughter, say, no extraordinary uh, medicines for maintaining the life, but under no circumstances are you to intentionally ask somebody or do it yourself to kill me. <laughs> don't do that. Even if I'm, I'm not going to recover, even if I'm going to linger for a while, don't ask anybody to participate in terminating your life deliberately and intentionally don't ask them to do that because even though they they're doing this out of compassion everything it's 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 the wrong idea they now have formulated the idea of killing a being and carried it out and accomplished it and that's that's a very negative thing for consciousness it's going to have negative repercussions but you know if you you're just, uh, medicate to comfort. This is a common uh, term in medicine. Uh, you're giving heavy medications. It it certainly is not, it's going to affect their lifespan perhaps, but your intention is not to kill them. It's to reduce the amount of pain they have. Uh, so medicate to comfort is okay, but medicate to death is not, <laughs> is not okay. So medicate to comfort, it may shorten their life. It may not, but... Uh, that's okay, but deliberate and intentional, with this I shall terminate them, no, don't do that.
1: Ajahn, our final question today is from Grace W. from Los Angeles, United States. Ajahn, you have been teaching us how to establish a different and more profitable emotion structure using metta so we can be better equipped to face sufferings in life. This reminds me of the bardo dream training in Tibetan Buddhism. Can you explain what to observe in our dreams to see if metta has really penetrated in our being? Much gratitude to this retreat.
0: Well, I'm glad you asked that, because tonight on the Dhamma Talk and tomorrow, I will thoroughly go into this with the 11 benefits of loving kindness. And here's the first three of those 11. One sleeps well... One wakes well, but one has no bad dreams. So, one of the excellent ways of changing the dream content is through the practice of loving kindness. It will change <clears throat> because it reduces fear, anxiety, foreboding, etc. If you will know the success as it starts to permeate your dreams, you will not have those heavy um, dreams. And you may actually—it's interesting that people come to the monastery, and and uh, they come and have an interview with me. And uh, this started happening 25 years ago, where people would say, "I had some wicked dreams last night." <laughs> I'm kind of surprised; like, huh, uh, I haven't had a dream like that for a long times. Uh, then I and I asked them, "Well, what was you know the dream was?" all kinds of horror images. And after a while, I th- started to say, what was the emotional tone, though? What was the emotional tone? And and quite often they'll report, well, I was able to handle it emotionally, but it was kind of uh, gruesome. So I, for a while, I was thinking about this, and then I, I started to realize perhaps that uh, when you go to a monastery on a retreat that it, the mind, the deeper mind might say to itself that, you know, there's things that I I don't want to look at in normal life. I can't afford to, I'm too busy. But now that I'm in a safe place, I think uh, I just want to examine this, see if I can handle it, see if I can face it. So the mind brings up these things. So now I I think that uh, in certain circumstances, when you feel safe and supported, that the stuff that is suppressed and you, you're, you're, you have not been able to, that the mind is not able to handle or is unsure it can handle, if it's in a safe condition, sometimes it can look at these things. But the quality, that the tone of that, the emotional tone, is that you kind of, you see some potentially disturbing things, but you're emotionally somewhat at ease with it or at least neutral. So that's one thing that happens. Now, if you remember a couple of questions ago, somebody said that they were having fear arise while they're in the meditation. And I said, uh, stop meditating and go sweep up the sala and so forth. This This is also the case is that when you're in a meditation retreat, things that have been suppressed for a long time because you just can't handle it. So trauma from childhood and so forth is frequently repressed and doesn't come up until you're in your 30s or 40s you you don't even remember it and then it starts to well up why does it well up when you're 40 because you can't handle it before then and it tends to well up because uh, 40 is kind of it's your we call it it can be called the decade of wisdom it's like you're at a state of maturity where you can Deal with these things, and uh, before that, it can put you right out. Uh, you can you can have psychosis. You, you you can have extreme reactions to this. The mind it doesn't doesn't want to deal with this. So meditation and loving kindness also give you strength, and you can handle things that rush up from the subconscious and you you can uh these things also can pervade right to your dreams and should and so you can see the your progress uh in uh, loving kindness is that it should uh go into your dreams by the way so one way to if you want to see heaven anybody want to see heaven okay, put your hand up you want to see heaven. You can see it in your dreams uh, only if you really induce profound loving kindness, profound loving kindness then your dreams you'll see this incredible, beautiful spaces beautiful, the buildings and the nature and oh the light very beautiful so that how do you get to see that? Uh, you need the uh, emotion of loving kindness. So if it's strong enough, it goes right into your sleep and
1: then shapes your consciousness like this.